The sermon text for today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Listen as I read God's word today. It's titled, This is the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, it's great to be here today. Uh, As we come to God's word this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his saints. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as happy as a mother of children. Praise the Lord. Lord, with the psalmist today, we ask this question, who is like the Lord, our God? Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage of scripture that you would open our minds and open our hearts to catch just a small glimpse of how beautiful and how wonderful you are. And Lord, may we leave here today with this question on our lips, who is like the Lord, our God? Help us see your nature, help us see your character and who you are today, Lord, and help us, most of all, to see your son, Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series called Gospel Foundations, and what we're doing over these next number of weeks is we are trying to spend some time looking with fresh eyes at this thing called the gospel. As a, as a church, this is what we're all about. We're all about the gospel. We're gospel people. We want to be changed, transformed by the gospel. And yet one of the dangers of being people who are gospel-centered and gospel-saturated is that whatever this thing is called the gospel can become routine for us. It can become something that becomes so familiar to us that it, it in some ways loses its power. It becomes domesticated when we are just become too familiar with it. And so what we want as a church family is we want for the message of the gospel, we want it to be fresh. We want to understand it and see it with fresh eyes. 
And so what we have to do as we uh, enter this journey of asking the question, what is the gospel, is uh, we just have to recognize that the gospel, the Bible presents the gospel not, as, not, not only or not, not primarily as sort of a one-line definition. That's, okay, here's the gospel, see it, believe it, there it is. The scripture presents the gospel not primarily as a one-line definition, but presents the gospel as a story. It's the story of God's work in the world to save and to redeem his people that has culminated in the person and the work, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of his son Jesus. And so what we have to do as we think about the gospel is we have to follow that story. We've got to follow that story throughout scripture. And so what we're doing here today is we're going to be thinking about who is God. That we're going to, in the weeks ahead, think about humanity, think about rebellion, Think about promise, think about rescue, think about restoration, and we're going to trace this message, this story of the gospel all throughout scripture. But what we have to do today is we have to start where the Bible starts. The Bible starts not with us, but the Bible starts with God. And so that's where we have to start, because if we don't get a clear picture of who God is in our minds, our definition of what the gospel is, what this good news about Jesus is, is going to be distorted or tainted from the very beginning. So we have to have a clear picture in our minds of who God is. And so we're going to spend today just talking about who is God. And of course, there's, there's so much we could say to answer that question. Uh, and it's, it's almost uh, comically foolish to try and just spend one sermon talking about who is God. And yet here we are today. Uh, we, could, we could say something about the love of God. We could say something about the grace, the compassion, the mercy of God. We could say lots of things about who God is. And yet where I want us to sort of focus our time this morning is thinking about the triune nature of God, that God is Trinity. Okay, now some of you may be sitting there thinking, why? <laughs> of all the things that you could choose to sort of zero in on, it's, I could think of like 16 other things that may seem a whole lot more important and relevant to our understanding of who God is than Trinity. <laughs> um, but my hope and my prayer is that as we move along through this text today, uh, that your mind would be changed and that you would come to a deeper and greater awareness of the significance of the triune nature of our God. So let's uh, look at this passage together that you heard Cheryl read just a moment ago. And as we do, I want to just ask the question, what does this passage tell us about God? That's what we're thinking about today. What, who, who is God and how does what we know about God influence our understanding of our view of this thing called the gospel, the good news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? So what does this passage tell us about who God is? Well, the first thing this passage tells us is something about the nature of God. It tells us what God is like. And specifically, that the unique, sort of uh, beautiful contribution that this passage from Matthew 28 presents us with is it tells us something about the triune nature of God, that God is Trinity. Now, this is basic Christian belief, and some of you here today are very familiar with this. Uh, some of you here today are not at all familiar with this. You've maybe never heard somebody tell you uh, what the Trinity is, or you've certainly never heard anybody tell you why in the world believing the Trinity makes any difference in the world. But this is one of the unique contributions that this passage makes, and so we want to just talk for a moment about the Trinity. So uh, just to put this as plainly and as simply as I can, the Trinity is, this is what the Trinity is. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God. He exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So one God exists in three distinct, unique, individual persons, 
and each of those persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is fully and eternally God, okay? So it, 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 they're, they're all fully God, meaning that God the Son isn't less God than God the Father, and they are eternally God, meaning that God the Spirit didn't come along sometime later after a couple hundred billion years of time passed and God said, well, I'll create a spirit, okay? There's one God, he exists as three distinct persons, and each person is fully and eternally God. That's, that's in, in a nutshell, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, does your brain hurt yet? Because if it doesn't, I don't think you understand what we just said. <laughs> and at this point, our, our brains should hurt. This is one of those times, this is one of those uh, teachings of the Bible where we sort of run face to face, we run <laughs> face first into our human limitations, our ability to fully understand or comprehend who God is. You may have heard a number of different illustrations to try and sort of you know, help you understand how this all fits together. They all fall short. There is no way to adequately or fully communicate that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. They're all equally and eternally God. There's no way to sort of tie that up and put a nice bow on it, right? But this is the doctrine of the Trinity. And the, the way we see this in this passage is in verse 19. Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So notice Jesus here, Matthew records Jesus saying, baptize them in the name of, not the names of. He doesn't say the names of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, baptize them in the name of, and then he lists three persons. So you've got this singular name that is represented by three persons. And so what this indicates to us is it shows us something of Jesus' understanding. Jesus himself is communicating something about the nature of God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a unified whole that are represented by one name. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the question then that arises at this point, okay, so we can all just, this, that's like the heavy theology part is sort of done now, okay? But at this point, the question that we should have in our minds is, okay, what possible difference in the world could this make? When I go to work on Monday morning, what in the world difference does it make if I believe that this is who God is? And thinking specifically about the gospel, how does this definition, this understanding of God, how does that change the way that we think about the gospel? Well, this is important because a right understanding of the gospel begins with the right view of God. A right understanding of what the gospel is begins with, is founded on a right view of who God is. And so the doctrine of the Trinity tells us something about who God is. So just put it this way. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God, for all of eternity, as Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed as a loving and sufficient community. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, for all of eternity, have enjoyed perfect unity, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect relationship, all together with one another for all of eternity. There was no point in time where God said, yeah, I'm kind of bored. Maybe I'll, I'll create a world. Maybe I'll create some human beings, and I can sort of watch them, you know, do their thing for a while. That'll give me something to do for, you know, a couple million years or however long it is until they end up killing each other, right? So, so the point of this is that God did not create 
The doctrine of the Trinity, that he's existed as a sufficient, loving community for all of eternity, tells us that God did not create out of divine boredom or lack. What it tells us is that God created as an overflow of his triune love. What we see in Genesis 1, with God created the heavens and the earth, and you see this explosion of creation onto the scene, that is the overflow of God's triune love that has always existed. God did not create us because he was bored, because he lacked something, because he needed someone to praise him and tell him how wonderful he was because his self-esteem had gone down. God did not create because he needed us. God created as an expression, as the overflow of his divine, inexhaustible triune love. That is why creation exists in the first place. So imagine two scenarios with me. Imagine someone calls you up or someone sends you a text message and your conversation goes like this. The person says, Hey, what are you up to? Nothing. How about you? Yeah, also nothing. Want to do something? Sure. What do you want to do? Well, I don't really know. What, do you have any ideas? And then it kind of goes back and forth like this for a little bit, and then you end up just kind of going over and hanging out and watching TV. Okay? So that situation... Now imagine a different situation where a friend calls you and before you can even get the word hello out of your mouth, they are <laughs> almost screaming to you on the phone, you have got to get down here. Me and, you know, Billy Bob Joe were down here in Minneapolis for something and we found the best street taco food truck that we've ever had in our entire lives. It is so good. You have to get down here right now. Whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is. This is more important than anything you could possibly be doing right now. Do you see the difference between those two? One person calls you because they're bored and they kind of, and, and you know, to sort of put it negatively, they want something from you. The other person calls you not because they're bored, but because there's an overflow of enjoyment that they want you to experience too. They want you to understand and to, and to experientially get how great these tacos or whatever, you know, whatever great thing you may be doing, right? So do you see the difference between those two? That, I think that just barely scratches the surface to help us understand the nature of God. That God did not create because he was bored, because he lacked anything. God created so that we could experience and share in his inexhaustible triune love. That is simply, God created for that reason alone. Simply, it was an overflow. He wanted us to be able to enjoy a part of that triune love that he has existed in for all of eternity. So that's, that, that's the, the Trinity, okay? And that's something of why I think it's important that we understand the Trinity. <laughs> that helps us understand something about who God is. But not only in this passage do we see something about the nature of God, the second thing this passage tells us about God is something of the mission of God. Of course, this passage is all about mission, right? This is the passage that if you hear a sermon on evangelism or if you hear a sermon on global missions, they're probably going to come to Matthew 28. This is the passage about mission, and of course, it's all about mission, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And now, therefore, I'm commissioning you as my followers to go out and to participate and to carry forward the mission that I have been on. Baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Meaning that all authority has been given to me. 
I'm giving you the resources to accomplish the mission that I'm sending you out on. I'm giving you the presence and the power of my Holy Spirit to accomplish this mission, to carry it forward in my physical absence. So this passage is all about, from start to finish, it's all about the mission of God. And yet I think the connection that we have to make here is between the triune nature of God and his mission. And I think the way to put it is like this, God's mission is rooted in his triune nature. Okay, the triune nature of God is the reason that the mission of God exists in the first place. Remember, God did not create because he lacked anything. God did not create. There there was no, put it this way, there was no John-sized hole in God's heart. And so God just had to create because he couldn't stand spending all of eternity without me. Yeah, that's called heresy, friends. (laughs) God did not create because he was bored. He did not create because he lacked anything. He created as an overflow of his inexhaustible triune love. After Genesis 3, when humans revolt against God, did something change with that? Did God suddenly need something from people? No. God did not need anything from anybody. It was the triune love of God that led him to create in the first place, and it's the overflow of the triune love of God that led God to set out on a mission to redeem and to restore his created world. It was the overflow of the triune love of God that he met Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin. That he met them there. He met them in their vulnerability and in their nakedness and he clothed them. It was the overflow of the triune love of God that he met a man named Abram, later called Abraham, and he called him out. Abraham was not seeking after God. He was not a Yahweh worshiper. He was worshiping pagan gods in a different part of the world and yet God just called him because he wanted to call him. It wasn't because Abraham was somehow better than anybody else. It was because God simply chose him and loved him. And God, in, his, in an overflow of his triune love, God made a promise to him that he's going to give him a family, he's going to give him a land, and that through that family, God is going to bring about the redemption. He's going to send a deliverer. It was out of the triune love of God that he saw his people as they were enslaved in Egypt. And God had compassion upon them, and he destroyed their enemies. He led them out into the wilderness, into his presence, and entered into a covenant relationship with them. It was out of the overflow of his triune love that God formed them into a people, that God gave them his instruction. He told them how to live life the way it was designed to be lived. It was the overflow of the triune love of God that led him to send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet when the people continued to live in selfishness and rebellion and failure and in every way they were unfaithful to God and God remained faithful to them. That was the overflow of his triune love. It was the overflow of God's triune love that led him to, for generations, be patient and more patient and more patient and more patient still. That was all the overflow of God's triune love. So every aspect of God's mission is dripping with his overflowing triune love. God created everything out of an overflow of that triune love. God then set out on a mission to redeem his creation as a result of that triune love. And friends, the Bible doesn't make any sense. The Bible makes zero sense if God set out on this mission because he wanted to get something from people. 
If God set out on his mission to redeem and to restore because he somehow needed something from humans, at what point in the story that continued from the New Testament until now, at what point in the story have humans ever given God the rightful praise and adoration and worship he deserves? That doesn't happen. This side of the new heaven and new earth, when Jesus comes back and restores it all, and we experience life in God's presence in bodies that are not corrupted or tainted by sin, short of that moment, there is no time where human beings get it and give God what he deserves. So it can't be that God needed to go on this mission because he needed to get something from us. It's simply the overflow of his divine, inexhaustible, triune love. It's just the kind of God he is. That's why God went on the mission that he went on. That's why God sent us his son. It's just the kind of God he is. He's perfectly sufficient and satisfied within himself, so much so that it overflows and spills over into his created world, and that is the very reason why God set out on this mission in the first place. And so we see here something of the nature of God, the triune nature of God, and we see something about God's mission, that both of them are rooted in God's triune, inexhaustible love. So as we, over the next number of weeks here, think about the gospel, what we're going to do is try and communicate it in, uh, in, in fresh ways, okay? So each one of these sort of movements in the story uh, highlights a different aspect of the good news about the events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So they all sort of contribute something unique. We're not going to preach a different gospel each week, but the gospel is, is robust, The gospel is multifaceted and you can turn it over and you can look at it this way and that way and every time you do, you get something fresh and something new from it. And so that's what we're gonna try and do is communicate something of that. But for our purposes today, what we can say is this. Good news. The triune love of God wins out over the failures of humanity. As we think about God and as we think about specifically the triune nature of God, the good news is this, the triune love of God has won out over the failures of humanity. This is good news for us because there will be times where we will be reminded of the things that we have done. The things that we have said, the things that we have done that we would give anything to take back. But we know we can't we'll be reminded of the things that have been done to us that have made us into the people we are today for better or for worse. The scars that we have, the hurts and the fears and the doubts we have because of things we've experienced. We will be reminded of all of those things. We'll be reminded of our character flaws. We'll be reminded of the sin patterns that exist in our life that we have maybe for decades been trying to master. And some days are okay and some days feel like it's a losing battle. We will be reminded of that and in the midst of that, as we think about the triune nature of God, there's good news. The triune love of God wins out over the failures of humanity. And this happens, the way that this happens is because the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, who's called the Christ, who's called the Messiah, God's anointed one, the second member of the Trinity took on human flesh and accompanied us in our humanity. He did not stay distant from us. He didn't recoil away from us in our sinfulness, in our revolt against him. He did none of that. It was the overflow of the triune love of God that he would 
He would rescue us. Not only does God not need something from us, God chose to save us and rescue us at great cost to himself. As Jesus hung on the cross, he absorbed the sting, he absorbed the pain of our sin into the heart of God. Jesus was the one who lived the life that we were supposed to live and have not lived. Jesus was the one who suffered and died the death that we should have died. He sat under the justice and the judgment of God for the sin that we have committed. And the good news is that in Jesus, the triune love of God wins out over the failures of humanity. No matter what your failures are, there is no failure that is strong enough to overcome the triune love of God. There is no thing you can do, no sin you can commit that can put you beyond the reach of God's inexhaustible triune love. And the good news of the gospel is that God sent us his son and that everyone who looks, hears the good news of the gospel, that God sent us his son, he was a real person who lived in real time, who lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died, and by putting our trust and our faith in him, by giving our allegiance to him, we can experience forgiveness. And we can be grafted into the family of God. And even now, we can begin to experience something of the triune love of God. We have a hope. We have a promise that Jesus will return and that one day sin will be eradicated and we will be able to fully experience and enjoy and bask in the triune love of God the way we were designed to. That is the hope we have. And so the good news is the triune love of God wins out over the failures of humanity. So as we come to the Lord's table today, as we come to receive Christ at the communion table like we do each week, I want to just give you a couple uh, just very brief ways to respond, okay? So number one, the first way you can respond is this. Remember that God does not need you. Some of you are thinking, boy, you are such an encourager. (laughs) Remember that God does not need you. Now, your, your first thought may be to think, well, boy, that cert- certainly sounds like you're devaluing me, like that makes me somehow less important. That's not true. Friends, you are the result of the overflowing triune love of God. God did not need to create you, and yet God delighted to form you in your mother's womb. God delighted to create you in his image. God desires that you would experience relationship with him and you would experience something of the inexhaustible triune love of God. And so it's an encouragement. We can remember God does not need us. And if that doesn't, if if the fact that God doesn't need you and yet he desired to create you anyways, if that doesn't fill you with a sense of dignity, and value, and honor, and worth, I don't know what can. So number one, remember, God does not need you. Second, stand in awe of him. Just simply stand in awe of a God that you cannot understand. You cannot wrap your mind around. You cannot fully comprehend. Of course, one of the ways that we do that is by sitting in silence by spending times of confession and reflection. 
We do that also by coming forward to receive communion. We stand in awe of him by singing songs loudly and even badly to our God because we love him. And as we walk out of here today at the end of this gathering, we, we walk out not as a, as a close to our worship, but propelled into a week of worship until we return together again. Friends, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a theological puzzle to be solved. You know, like one of those little uh, metal like brain teaser games where you're trying to, you know, put it in just the right way and see if you can get the two things separated from each other. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some weird puzzle to be solved. It is a beautiful mystery that is designed to lead us to worship. And so this morning as we come to the communion table, we do just that. We worship him for who he is. We worship him for his overflowing triune love. And so we sing, we give, we take communion, and right now we spend some time sitting in quiet reflection and silence. Merciful God, we do confess today that we have sinned against you. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, God, that we have not loved you with our whole heart or mind or strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We ask, Lord, that in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.